Well, we are continuing our journey through the book of Philippians today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be. And if you don't have a Bible, that bulletin you have actually has the passage right there in front of you. But I thought I'd tell you a story about a little girl. Her name is Emma. She's 11 years old, uh, about to be 12 in a couple of weeks. And um, Emma and her siblings have a YouTube channel called Borktastic. And, um, and Emma uh, recently uh, accepted Christ through uh, a Tim Tebow evangelistic uh, experience and she and her uh, she and her siblings do these videos you see her there she's about to hit this volleyball and it's going to go all the way through the net uh, but you know how these are done right hours and hours and hours of not making it <laughs> and so I, I wrote a, a, a letter to Emma just being, uh, you know, expressing um, my just thrill at her decision to follow Jesus. Um, and I, I told her this, I said, think of how many times you've tried to make the perfect shot for your borktastic videos. That's called perseverance. You kept at it, you kept trying, and eventually you got it. You actually made more mistakes than getting it right. That's what it's like walking with Jesus. We stumble more than we walk, but as we persevere, we actually start getting better and better at walking. And here's the best news of all. Even as we're stumbling in following Jesus, he's never stumbling at work to change us. He's making every shot all the time. There's no editing in Jesus' video. Now, I really wanted to tell her more than that, but you have to understand, uh, she's an 11-year-old girl, and I've already written to her all these words. <laughs> and I have a very difficult time, especially as a preacher, trying to uh, not uh, open up the fire hydrant to give people a little drink of water. <laughs> so what I really wanted to go on and tell her is, but the goal of the Christian life isn't walking better and better with Jesus. It's not you getting better and better at walking with Jesus. It's knowing Jesus better and better before you actually see Jesus. That's really what the Christian life is all about. That's what this chapter, Philippians chapter 3, is all about as we continue to look at this idea, this just beautiful description of Christians here is hope-filled, humble strivers, for the prize. We looked at this once last week. I'm going to do a little repeating again this week without any apology uh, because I just can't help but just see the value of this, particularly as we join literally hundreds of millions of Jesus followers all around the world this week celebrating what's known as Holy Week and remembering the suffering uh, of our Lord. Uh, so let me pray for us as we get underway. Our Father, you have given us a gift that we've only barely begun 
unwrapping this side of home, the gift of your son and the continuing work of your son and the gift of your spirit. Would you right now in these few moments open our eyes and ears fully wide to take in the Christ we adore who adores us even more as we pray in his name. Amen. So I want to talk a little bit about this prize here uh, to which we're striving. I mostly today want to talk about this concept of striving for the prize. It actually goes hand in hand with that New City Catechism question about what, where do works fit into the Christian life? Where, do, where does obedience fit in? But I want you to know that this prize for which we strive, that's what we celebrate every week when we take bread and cup. This is what Jesus died, this prize, this is what he died, this is what he lived a perfect life for, this is what he died to secure for us, and as we'll celebrate next Sunday, his resurrection is proof that what he secured for us is really real. It's the beginning of everything he secured for us. And so this prize is described in Philippians 3 in several different ways, the, of knowing Christ and the resurrection from the dead, uh, perfection, uh, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These are all different ways of describing this prize. And we've already actually sung of it. I didn't even know that we would sing of it this morning, so it was so appropriate for the Holy Spirit to pick that song for us this morning uh, about heaven. But just imagine a world where there's no more death, and no more sin. Imagine a world where there's no more fatigue and disease, no more abuse or injustice, no more of the mental and emotional and relational limitations that get in the way of interacting with other human beings. Imagine a world where the love of Christ in us is fully unleashed out of us forever and ever and never gets exhausted. And imagine a world where you are complete, you are perfect, and yet you're forever growing and advancing. Imagine a world where maybe just in one word, it could be described as home. Our rest or safe, our family. Verses 20 and 21 is another description. It's not up here on the slide, but look at, look at chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Here are two more. Here, here's another description of the prize. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Verse 20 and 21 remind me of something else the Bible constantly says about uh, believers. They're waiting people. They're waiting for something. They're waiting for something expectantly. Uh, right now, we only see Jesus from a distance. We, uh, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, in a mirror dimly. But someday, as real as you and I are seeing each other, we will see Jesus someday. 
In fact, all of humanity will. They'll either see him as their Lord and they'll rejoice or they'll see him as their judge and they'll forever uh, regret not ever bowing to him as their Lord. But here in verse 21 is a beautiful description. We're waiting for something much more than just seeing Jesus face to face. We are waiting for the power he has to subject all things to himself. Not just my body is he going to transform, but Jesus Christ, King Jesus, is going to one day transform all things. So whether it's John Lennon who reminded us to imagine all the people, within that song there is an ache for something, isn't there? There is an ache for a world that is so wrong to be right. Last year, the number one song stayed on the Billboard charts longer than any uh, other song last year was a song by Miley Cyrus called Flowers. It's the, the song begins by her basically just talking about a very familiar theme in songs, a relationship that meant everything that suddenly is broken beyond repair. But the words, her response to that, are haunting. I can buy myself flowers. I can write my name in the sand. I can talk to myself for hours. I can hold my own hand. And then the chorus that comes, I can love me better. I can love me better, baby. So that's what they do. That's what happens when, when you get burned by other people. Forget it. I can love myself. I can get to the place where I can protect myself and never be hurt by any other human being. I'm all I need. You're just simply trading one deception for another deception. But you can resonate with that, can't you? You can understand why a song like that was up there for quite a while. There's coming a day when there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. King Jesus is going to fill everything forever and keep expanding everything forever. All of our broken relational longings will be forever fulfilled. There will be no relationship you have ever known here, however great, that will even come close to the weakest of relationships if there is such a thing in this new world. All that spirit of adventure that God has given you for small things and stupid things will now suddenly be for great things forever and ever. That is the prize for which we are striving. But what does that striving look like? Well, there's three things I want to share with you today from this passage here. First of all, the prize that we are striving for, we actually begin to taste it, experience it, before we ever even get to the finish line. Look at verse 12. Paul wants to make it clear. I'm not perfect yet. Don't even think that I am perfect. But I do this. I press on to make it my own. This phrase, make it my own. Paul says, I press on to begin experiencing what's already mine. How does he know it's already his? Well, read the next few words. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, the, the price has already been secured for me by Christ. It's not up to me to get it. And so I want to begin partaking of it. In other words, last week I mentioned that this idea that Christ has already secured the prize, it energizes 
striving. That's what energizes striving in us is that, uh, is that we're not laboring away to get something. We're laboring away because we have something. But it does something else. We can already start spending our inheritance. Life is not all endurance and then eternity. It's eternity before eternity. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 17, Jesus says, let me define eternal life for you. Eternal life isn't a place. It's an experience. It's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So the minute that you give your life to Christ, you begin experiencing eternal life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it a different way. We all with this unveiled face, that's, that's a kind of word picture of what happens when you bow to Jesus and surrender your life to him. Uh, he takes this spiritual blindness over your face and he removes it and suddenly you behold Christ. And in beholding him, you're actually being changed into him in that process. And Proverbs 4 says it in kind of a sort of gives a picture of creation. Proverbs 4 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that gets brighter and brighter until full day. Believers should be experiencing this sense of transformation long before we're even there. And that's one of the reasons why I said that joy, the definition I've been using for joy is joy is this contented anticipation Another way of saying that is we're taking our future certainty and we're beginning to spend it in the present. We're taking future grace and turning it into present grace. And this can happen in so many different ways, but I'll just give you one little illustration. I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed to uh, share this because I should have learned this at least 20 or 30 years ago, but um, even though I've known it in my head for that long, it feels like only recently have I actually began experiencing it. But uh, I'm a person that's um, pretty confident, uh, and, and you'd think that would be a good thing, but sometimes that's actually not such a good thing. Because you see, when you're confident, uh, you have a high tendency to trust in yourself. And since virtually 90% of the time I'm right and 90% of the time I'm successful, well, it just keeps reinforcing that stupidity. <laughs> so as a result... As I've gotten older, I've discovered that my body is getting in the way of my will. I have many times, unfortunately, when I find myself thinking, Lord, I'm too old for this. And it's easy in those times to either get anxious for something that's coming up or I just don't have anything left in me. Or if I'm not anxious, I'm angry that I have to do something. And while, I, while I've known for years and kind of, okay, Rick, don't just give that anxiety over to the Lord, repent of it and just get up, do the right thing, blah, blah, blah. Now I've discovered something different. What if before that moment comes, it could be a meeting I'm having, it could be some project I'm involved in that I feel a little overwhelmed by. What if I began thinking that God's actually going to show up there and actually began anticipating what seems unbelievable, that out of nowhere, God's going to give me what I need? Now, on paper, I know that's true, 
But instead of just, okay, Lord, here's my anxiety, what about actually anticipating and expecting that the God who's made promises will show up and somehow, some way deliver on them? And it has been powerfully helpful thinking about that. That's just one of the ways that we're sort of borrowing future grace and using it for today. So this prize we can begin experiencing even before we get to the finish line. And that's why this life is very rewarding. The Christian life ought to be more rewarding than you could ever imagine. Yet, it is also simultaneously more painful than we think we can endure. Look at verses 7 and 8 in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In fact, I count it as rubbish. And then he goes on. Paul basically says, here's all my hard-earned credentials. Here's where I'm, getting, here's where I'm going with this. The Christian life constantly forces you to make comparisons between what you want and what you have in Christ. Between what you want and what you have in Christ. So we're constantly being told by everything and everyone, this is important. This is essential. You should have this to be happy, to be fulfilled. This is your identity. This is what makes you worth something. We're constantly over and over being told that. And Paul wants us to stand up to that and say, that's all rubbish. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. Don't work for all these hard-earned credentials. They're all rubbish at the end of the day. Every week, really almost every day, we have to let go of what's necessary, what we think is so important for what is actually essential. In the words of Jesus to Mary, the one thing that is important, and that is knowing Christ. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, that gets right at it. This is what keeps us from losing heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, all of you will eventually uh, get to this wonderful stage, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There really is someone inside of us, the new self that's just getting ready to burst out. It's still in chick form. Can you... Someday it's going to be flying. For this light momentary affliction, boy, that's a phrase worth stopping on, right? Just imagine if it had just said this affliction. It's describing this world, these 80 or 90 years that we have. Light and momentary. It's preparing us for something, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And here's the problem. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The seen things are not going to last. The unseen things are. And here's the problem, isn't it? It's so much easier to look at the things that are seen. And so constantly, day by day, we have to let go of the seen things, the things we really want. And we have to continue to choose what's far beyond comparison. Let me just give you a little more examples of this. Verses 12 through 14, look at the words here. Pressing, straining, forgetting. These are resistance words, right? These are the Christian life. We're constantly fighting headwinds and off-ramps. Headwinds and off-ramps. Let me just focus on one of these words, the word forgetting. 
forgetting what lies behind in order to strain forward to what lies ahead. What did Paul have to forget? Look at his description of himself up in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We're hiring a new pastor. I don't know if you knew that, but just in a, in a few years, we're hiring a new pastor to take over. And uh, I hope this doesn't bother you, but this guy used to execute Christians. Are you guys okay with that? <laughs> no wonder no Christians wanted anything to do with Paul when they first brought him to Jerusalem. Can you imagine the shame Paul had to deal with in that? How utterly wrong he was? Can you imagine how that shame would have just completely knocked him out of competition and said, I have no business being a leader in the Christian church? Boy, this is the beautiful thing about Christ. Because of Christ, our past, I don't care what you've done, is not a shame anchor. It's always a trophy of grace. I've done things in my life that I don't want any human being to ever know. And if I lived there, I would die there. But Christ, in the words of Isaiah, turns ashes into beauty. It's amazing. But it's not just shame. It's not just shame. There's something else I think that we need to forget here. It's also loss. We also have to forget what we have to lose to follow Jesus. The passage Aaron read for us about all these people having died in faith, but they received these things. Uh, I love the phrase, they saw them, they greeted them from afar. By the way, that's another description of borrowing future grace for the present. They, didn't, they never received all the promises, but they saw enough to reach out and grab it, to strive for it, and it made a difference in the present. And these people, it says, were seeking a better homeland. But catch this phrase, it's so important. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. This is another huge temptation. This is another one of those sort of off-ramps if we're not careful. We have to give up things and keep giving up things to follow Jesus. We, there are certain dreams that have to die in your life because you're a Jesus follower. There are restrictions that you place on your lifestyle, on your career, on your friendships because of Jesus. There are beliefs that you hold dear that are offensive and you have to be careful uh, in even articulating them half the time because of Jesus. There are family members that you have to let go of because they are not your real family. These are just some of the small things and what we have to give up and keep giving up to follow Jesus over and over again. I know some of you are in these situations over and over again. You have to fight to joyfully embrace the life that you have that is not the life that you want. You have a life of chronic illness, but you have to embrace that. You have a life where you'd love to be married, but you have to embrace singleness. You have a life of a difficult marriage. You have a life where you're stuck in one location geographically and you can't seem to ever relocate. But you have to keep re-embracing that with joy because you know this. You know it's all being redeemed. You know it's keeping you from making paradise here 
for a better paradise to come of surpassing worth. That's why in verses 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering because I want all these things to come together. Look at the end of verse 10, because I want to become like Jesus in his death. That's why Romans 28, or Romans 8, 28, I should say, and 29, that someone shared with me uh, just this week, reminding me of this passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what is the good to which all things work together for? Read the next verse. To be conformed to the image of his son. Do you know what that word conformed is? It's when God breaks and shapes and presses something into a mold. It ain't pleasant. It's painful most of the time. But it's necessary because God is making something beautiful, and this is how God makes beautiful things. That's why the Christian life is the same path that Jesus uh, walked, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. That's why over and over again we're learning that the way up in this world is down. That you're most free when you're most submitted. That you find your life when you lose it. That you have to die to your old self so that your new self will soar. But here's the problem. That's why I say that it's more painful than we think we can endure. There's a counterfeit salvation that we're constantly fighting. And you know what I'm about to say, right? The counterfeit salvation is that there's a paradise you can experience right now. There's a paradise you can experience right now here on earth. And uh, no one has done a better job in my mind of articulating this than this guy C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. So I'm going to let him speak today. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, that's the prize to which we're striving, by the way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong in this world, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot ma imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. These things, he says, this is great. We talked about this last week. These things in the world that we experience, that we think are paradise, like beauty, like the memory of our own past, good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Haven't we seen that over and over and over again? You see, they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of the flower we have not found. The echo of the tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. Isn't that the grand deception? 
Isn't that the grand deception you and I fall for over and over and over again? Which leads me to this last point, the shortest point. This striving is impossible without discipleship. It is impossible without discipleship. By that I mean a community of serious strivers. Look at how our passage continues, verse 17 of chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're in destruction, their God, their belly, their glory, their shame, because are with their minds set on earthly things. Our citizenship, however, it's in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudoia and Sintica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, I, al- I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So in verse 17, Paul says, keep your eyes on those who are more practiced than you. Uh, Jeff, a couple weeks ago, gave us a great illustration of this. You know, learning, uh, uh, was, is it karate? Is, uh, yeah, okay, there we go. Uh, in the dojo, and do you remember him telling how he was like, uh, what do you start off with, no belt at all? Or do you start off with like a white belt? Okay, and then you work your way up, right? But he was saying that not only do you look at the master and what he's doing up front, you're also helped by the fact that there are layers of people more practiced than you between you and the master. And I thought, what a great description of discipleship. What a great description of what the church is. Get yourself around serious strivers. If you're around serious losers in the Christian world, please come and see me. (laughs) And then in verse 1, here is the heart of a shepherd. By shepherd, think of elders in our church. Think of counselors in our church, small group leaders in our church. Uh, These are the people who love and long for you. They love and long for you to grow closer to Christ. That's why you're their joy. You're their crown. I would put it this way, that there are people probably in your life who words cannot describe the ache they feel to see you finish the race. People who've wept tears over you who prayed for you, who groaned before God over you, who cannot wait for the day when your long struggle is finally done and you're safely home. Those are the people that you need to be around and you need to become one of those for other people as well. That's what God's work is all about. You are someday destined to be beautiful beyond your wildest dreams. And there are people that ache deep within their soul because Christ put that ache there to see you that way. And then in verses 2 and 3, don't forget, despite the fact that you have these people that ache for you in verse 1 of chapter 4, there's disagreements in the best of churches. 
In fact, if you notice verse 2 and 3, all of us are responsible for all of us. All of us are responsible for all of us. Good men and women can and should disagree in every Christian community. That's not the problem. The problem is not resolving those disagreements leaves a foothold for a prowling lion. So, that's what we're laboring for here, by the way, in this church. We are laboring to form this resistance community. This radically contrasting city of refuge for those wanting to flee from the anarchy of a kingless society. That's who we are. These hope-filled, humble strivers for the prize. Let me give one more thought here before I, uh, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team and the guys serving communion to come forward. And I'll just say this like we do every Sunday here. This table is open to any who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. Now, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if he isn't your Savior or King, uh, then you would be doing yourself and him a disservice by participating. But this can be your day of making that true for your life. We'll come up the center aisle and I'll lead us in taking the bread and cup in just a few moments. But I, I would want to ask, to some extent, all of you, but even more specifically, just some of you, does all this straining and pressing for the prize, does all this talk about straining and pressing for the prize, does it just ricochet off of you? Does chapter 3, verse 19 describe you? Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. Are you striving for things that won't last, that are spoiling? Are you addicted to your belly? Those appetites within you that you can't control, that you think you are controlling. If so, let me just say what God says to you. You're destroying yourself. You are destroying this beautiful image of God in yourself. And if you don't wake up, you will eventually destroy yourself forever. But there is a promise that I would uh, remind you of here. In fact, C.S. Lewis would remind you of this promise. It's a promise not only to those of you who are uncertain about this Jesus, but it's a promise to all of you who know Jesus, a promise for all of us to refresh ourselves with as we come to the table even this morning. It is the promise of glory. A promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. Shall find approval, shall please God. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but can you imagine delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a son? It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, and that's what I warn you about. Repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and un unspeakably ignored. Boy, if you think you're being ignored by God now. On the other hand, on the other hand, we can be called in. 
welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. That's what we celebrate this morning. So take a moment with the Lord. I'll pray for us and then you come. Oh, Father, I know that for virtually everyone in this room, a hundred years from now, especially for those in Christ, we will only begin tasting what is in store for us forever and ever. We do confess that we get so easily distracted by the off-ramp of paradise here only to discover some dark alley that we should have never gone down. Save us, we pray. Save those in this room today who do not know you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ that has unlocked and opened wide the gates of the prize for us forever and ever. 